Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered, a Shadi Nabhan podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. I am honored today to host Dr. Vincent Rajkumar from the Mayo Clinic, not to talk about myeloma, but to talk about his role as an editor-in-chief of a major journal. The reason I've invited Dr. Raj Kumar on this podcast is pretty straightforward. During the COVID-19 pandemic, there has been a lot of dissemination of information through the peer-reviewed literature, through abstracts and papers, but also on preprint servers, press releases, consensus statements, guidelines. And as a consumer of information, if you are consuming this information, as an individual patient or a family member or just a regular person, or if you are consuming this information as a healthcare provider or as a physician, which of these sources of information you are gonna take seriously? Are you going to ignore a press release until you wait for an abstract or a paper? Are you going to only apply the information that are coming from papers published in the peer review literature? Are you going to not follow recommendations because you don't view them aligned with your own review as a critical appraiser of the information that you just read? The goal of this podcast is to wear the critical appraisal hat as an editor-in-chief and help us all as a community understand how we look at all of these various sources and when should we really adapt information coming from a press release versus not. Not all press releases are created equal and not all papers are created equal. There are good press releases and there are garbage papers. And the goal today is to try to solicit the help of Dr. Vincent Rajkumar in explaining to us all of these details and hopefully find a way or a sweet spot where we can all agree on into how best we can really help each other and help the public. Now, before I air the episode that I taped with Dr. Raj Kumar, I'd like to ask you to rate the show, subscribe to the show, review the show, refer the show to a few colleagues, and you can also watch the show on my YouTube channel, Healthcare Unfiltered, or Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Without further ado, once again, a dear friend of mine and of Healthcare Unfiltered, Dr. Vincent Rajkumar. Well, it's really a pleasure of mine to uh, host again, uh, Dr. Vincent Rajkumar, great friend of the show and a uh, personal friend as well. He's been always generous with with me volunteering his time as well as with the show trying to educate um, the public about the various issues from COVID-19 to multiple myeloma. But today, actually, Vincent's going to wear a different hat. We're going to talk about something else. We'll talk a little bit about the pandemic, a little bit about uh, scientific articles. But I want him to wear his editor-in-chief hat. He's going to tell us a little bit about that role. What does that entail? And we're going to talk about how things have evolved in terms of reviewing data and reviewing clinical information and trial information 
from press releases to preprints to peer-reviewed articles to abstracts, all of these things, and, and how this really affects taking care of patients and the public acceptance to all of these platforms that have suddenly emerged. I'm very curious to hear, uh, Vincent, your, your thoughts. Um, do you mind introducing yourself again? I think most of my listeners know who you are, but maybe shed a little bit more light on the editor-in-chief, the journal, and, and how what what is that role exactly? What do you do in that role? Well, Chadi, thanks so much for having me. Um, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I know what you're saying. Uh, most of the time when we talk, you're talking myeloma or costs, and uh, today it's a totally different subject. I look forward to the conversation. As you know, I'm, a, I'm an active researcher, and I do laboratory research, clinical and AP research. But on the other hand, I also have been an editor for journals for a long time, many years now. I was an associate editor, section editor for leukemia for, I don't know, more than 15 years now I have been, and uh, also the Mayo Clinic proceedings for more than 10, 12 years as an associate editor and as, a, as the editor-in-chief of Blood Cancer Journal I, along with ILU for at least uh, since the start of the journal. So this has been a, uh, uh, an important separate portion of my career. And the job involves, like when you're an associate editor or a section editor, the job is really in processing the papers that are assigned to you by the editor-in-chief and deciding you know, whether to send it for peer review or not. And then if you do send it for peer review, looking at the peer reviewer comments and making a decision on how much revisions are needed or whether the paper is not suitable for the journal. And then the editor-in-chief actually takes the final decision. As editor-in-chief, the role is similar, but like the buck stops here, ultimately, you have to decide whether to okay the article for publication or not. And um, it's a little bit more challenging because I don't have room for error. I don't have anyone else overlooking my shoulder to see if this is the right decision or not. So I am very careful in everything that I do when it comes to uh, the Blood Cancer Journal in terms of you know, reviewing papers, assigning reviewers, and then deciding on the merits you know it <clears throat> it's hard for me not to ask you this question um because it's interesting right i mean you make it you eventually have to make a decision and there are the pay there are papers are slam dunk right like you know they have to come in and papers where you know they're garbage they're not going to come in garbage for your journal but then there are these papers where you know i mean a reviewer likes it the other one doesn't and, and you know what i'm talking about do you ever have you ever accepted a paper and then you felt like, you know, and the paper came on social media and it was like completely like the, 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 the uptake was terrible. Like it was contrary to what you expected. And at the same token, have you ever rejected the paper? And then you saw that paper that you read in a different journal and really a lot of people were uptaking and you said like, ah, I could have, I could have accepted that paper. Oh yes, definitely. That's happened um, both ways. Um, every editor is different, um, and people should realize that there are uh, journals which have editors-in-chief 
whose whole job is being an editor-in-chief. They nice. don't have a separate research career or you know anything that they are on their own doing research and publishing. Um, they're in-house editors and they perform that as their main occupation. And then there are editors like me who have a totally full academic career and many times are in the field and there are pros and cons to both, you know, like if you're already in the field, then you're biased by what your own beliefs are in the field. So if you get a paper that is opposed to your view as a researcher, and now you're wearing an editor's hat, you have a different role. And on the other hand, the, the pluses are you do know the field really well uh, to know when the reviewers may not be accurate. And so there are some editors who defer to the peer reviewers. Like if two reviewers say this is a bad article, they usually reject it. I Most of the time, I would heed to the reviewers' thoughts, but I, 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 there are many occasions where I disagree with all the reviewers, two or three reviewers, because I feel like the paper is actually quite good and salvageable, and maybe the reviewers' comments are not accurate. Because I am in the field, I am doing the research. So how much time, how much time does this take of your, uh, like, is it 20%? Like, how, how much, uh, is it a monthly, bi-weekly? I mean, I presume you get the papers every day, you get papers submitted. So how much work does that entail? It is a lot of work. Um, because I'm doing three journals full, you know, the Mayo Clinic Proceedings and Leukemia and then Blood Cancer Journal. Two of them as associate editors and one as the editor in chief. So the, the between the three, it's a lot of time commitment. And therefore, I have taken you know I'm only 0.8 at Mayo, so I have taken time off to make sure I have at least two or three days of the week. You have the weekend, and then you have an extra day fully to devote to editorial duties. Well, then you are the perfect guest to what I'm trying to accomplish here. And you know, my role is, my goal is really to educate the public and educate myself, frankly, as well. So Vincent, you've been very active um, with the COVID-19, whether it is in the US and in India, and you kept your, your, your fingers on the pulse into what's going on. And, and um, uh, you know, I've, I've always admired your opinions. We've had some disagreements, me and you here and there, but we've always had a lot of respect for each other's opinions. But what I wanna highlight is what this pandemic has shown me is that some of the in clinical information usually get disseminated and shared before a paper is ever published. And even before an abstract, like I, we have been able to see information coming through press releases. We, uh, you know, on a website, we have been able to see information coming on a preprint silver uh, uh, server. Then we have information as an abstract for a scientific meeting and 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 papers. I want you to put your editor in chief hat. How do you evaluate this data? Um, if you see press release, do you say that's I'm not going to look at it? Abstract, it's missing. Like how? How do you assess this? Because your assessment could have clinical impact on patient care. Yes, and I think you you clearly are, uh, align the various formats in which information is coming to us. Press release, 
then the abstract presentation, and then the full uh, preprint, and then the full peer-reviewed publication. And um, most of the time, the discourse is that unless it's in peer-reviewed publication, you know, it's not fully vetted, and therefore there might be problems with it. And so people just need to understand what is the peer review process and what it actually it accomplishes. So if, a, if an article comes to me, uh, I'm assigning it to two or three people uh, who I feel are suitable experts in the field to look it over. Ask the authors for additional comments or revisions or say that the, that the data is not actually sound and rejected. What peer review accomplishes is if the authors are making a misinterpretation or they're, they're not analyzing it correctly, or they've analyzed it in one way, but there has to be additional analysis done in, the other, in this other way. So those are all things that the peer, and also interpretation, whether they're interpreting the data correctly or not. All of that peer review accomplishes. What peer review does not accomplish is detect fraud. I mean, if somebody makes stuff up, peer review won't catch it. Peer review goes by the fact that the author is credible, the institutions that present the data are credible, and therefore, you know, that's, that's the whole assumption. Fraud is captured by other means, but it's not by peer review, unless there's like manipulation of figures or, you know, something like that, or plagiarism or something like that. But most of the time, fraud cannot be caught on peer review. So people should know that. So then when you have a, a, a press release come out in the time of- So, so before, before then, how long does it take the peer review? Like in your, it varies, but how long to give a sense to listeners the time? Yeah. So again, you know, you and I, when we, I, when I started working in the field, uh, all of the peer review was by regular mail. Oh yeah. <laughs> submit the article in regular mail, then it goes in regular mail to the peer reviewers they may or may not want to review. And then it, so it takes probably sometimes several months for the article to get accepted or a year or longer. And therefore it actually made sense to have abstracts and press releases because otherwise you'll never know the data for a year or more if it's an important piece of information. Nowadays, uh, we try to make a decision within two to three weeks of submission, uh, the first decision. From the time of the acceptance, we try to put it on, on online within two or three weeks of that. So a good paper where the author is prompt with the revisions and requests for all of the information can be submitted like today, June 3rd, or, and then the uh, August 3rd, it could be out in print. Okay, the whole process is truncated now to that short thing. And if it's an important article, you can have expedited review. Some of the more high impact journals can have reviewers that would be willing to review in 72 hours and post it within you know, two, three weeks of submission. So things have gotten better depending on what is the paper trying to say. If this is a new treatment that people could actually have, or if this is a change in the therapy that could be made ba based on this result, some journals will try to get this information out as quickly as possible. So the peer review process, even though it's, it's an important component, it may not delay things too much. So then that's for the actual paper. Now, now 
you said the preprint. Yes. T tell listeners what is a preprint because I mean, five years ago, I don't think I, I don't know. I mean, preprint seems to be a new hot thing that have evolved over the past year or so. Uh, has it like is this a new thing? Has it been going on for a while? And what? Where do people put it? Is there an actual website? Every preprint goes on. Like, what, what's the process? Any insight into that? Yes. And so, just like we talked about peer reviewed papers and peer reviewed papers and the process, the, 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 what COVID has really uh, helped us realize is the immense value of preprints, where someone could just post whatever they've written the original research article or a, or a review and post it on one of these preprint servers. And there are many preprint servers available online which are well established and they take uh, 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 you know submissions. Elsevier runs one big one. Um, so those articles are not peer reviewed. They just submitted in a particular format and it's not judged for whether it's you know, high impact, low impact, uh, whether the analysis is done the right way, but it has the raw data and it, you know, puts it out there. Now, you have to ask, you know, when you say, what is the pros and cons of a preprint? The way at least I look at it is, let's say if there is a, a preprint on dexamethasone for treatment of COVID, okay? If that preprint is out there, dexamethasone is a commercially available drug. I could change practice tomorrow if the drug is what they say it is. Then I go through the preprint and I put on the peer reviewer hat. After all, most of the people on Twitter uh, who are not most, uh, um, most of the people on Twitter are consuming the information, but there are all your peer reviewers and most of your peer reviewers would also be on social media. And people who critically evaluate and comment on Twitter, let's say, at least with dexamethasone, the comments that I saw were from people who are peer reviewers. If, if this article had gone to a journal, one of us would have received this article for peer review. It's not like a whole different group of people called peer reviewers who are somewhat special. They're, they're the same people on Twitter and they read the same paper and they make their own assessment on what changes are needed or not. So when you have feedback from those kind of individuals on Twitter, then it's almost like they have peer reviewed the paper for you. The only thing that is missing is that it's not in the, in the name of a journal, but it tells you all the works. It tells you, yes, it's a good paper, but these are the problems. These are the additional analysis you need to do and so on. So I looked at that paper with that kind of an eye, you know, wearing the editor's hat, wearing the peer reviewer's hat, and asking myself, have they gotten all the information listed that I need to make a call? Is there any analysis that's missing that's important to have? And if not, I feel like that paper is just as good as a peer reviewed paper. What's the benefit of the, what, why would the author put something on a preprint, like, you know. Because is, is they that, want the word out quickly. I see. If it's an important enough piece of information, they want the word out quickly, and then the you can decide whether you want to use it to change practice or not. Now, preprints 
I am not reading all the preprints. I'm reading selected preprints that are so critically important to me that will make a difference to my practice. Then I wear the editor's hat or the reviewer's hat and read the preprint critically and make my own impression. And so do other people. But you know, Vincent, some might argue that um, not all people who read the preprint, um, you know, are... I would say good analysts of clinical trial and good, you know, not everybody's going to be editor in chief of a journal and has the uh, acumen of critically appraising a particular study. Correct. They may see the preprint and they read the abstract and read the conclusion and they go ahead and do something with the data without really looking at the tables and the analysis like you do. So I, I could see the pushback into that if the preprint is out there and people who are not as well qualified to critically appraise the study, they may do they may start changing practices inappropriately. What do you say to that? I think that's a very legitimate concern. That is an important concern of preprints is that there might be people who read the the article and make the wrong conclusion because they didn't look for all the analysis that should have been done. Um, keeping in mind that many peer-reviewed papers are also flawed, even if it oh, comes yeah. from a very top journal. And there are very big mistakes that are made in interpretation, conflicts of interest, so you want. And that's why whether it's a peer-reviewed paper or a preprint, Unless you are confident of critical appraisal on your own, you want to see what other people who are confident of critical appraisal and who are good at critical appraisal say about. So I don't think people should look at a preprint and jump to conclusions. But if they see five or six people who are qualified peer reviewers on Twitter saying that, yeah, we have looked at it and this looks good, then just, that's as good as you're going to get. Because at least now the peer reviewers who are saying this is good are not anonymous you know who they are and their credibility. So you don't need to just trust the author's name. Twitter is telling you that, hey, there are these six people who are qualified. They've all run randomized controlled trials. They are either experts in COVID or steroids or something. And they are telling you the UK trial is very legitimate. Waiting for two months or three months will only harm people. Um, this is just important to go ahead. Then you should just view that as a non-anonymous peer review you're getting live out in the so, open. Yeah, so I, I think I like this. So the preprint seems to be pretty convincing because you have these actual reviewers. So even if you are not a, an experienced oncologist, you see these experts who uh, pontificated on that. And really, it's a matter of administrative issue between preprint and the actual exactly. paper. But press releases are different, right? I mean, so exactly. tell us about press releases. Exactly. So again, um, I saw with, uh, I think the dexamethasone story is a good one because yeah, let's we use have a specific yeah. example so we can look at it. Um, so when the, when all through COVID, I saw this, not just with dexamethasone, I saw this with remdesivir, I saw this with, with many, many things from the vaccines to everything that there would be a whole group of people who says, oh, no, we cannot do anything based on a press release. Why is the press release coming out before the paper? Or why is the, the thing? And I think the first thing to keep in mind is, unless people are living under a cave, that's how it's always been. <laughs> the, ran the large randomized trials, the press release always precedes everything else. 
It may be time to be coming out exactly on the same day as the abstract, but if it's a very important result that could affect the value of a company, then they don't wait for the abstract because the abstract is not confidential. There are five or six reviewers who look at it. There are people whose eyes lay on it. And so if it's a, if it's a trial that can affect the stock valuation of a company or something, they're bound to issue a press release to say, we did a double blind randomized trial. We found this vaccine to work. And that's the press release. They have to issue it. And that happens with every oncology drug. I mean, all big oncology trials, you will see that they would, if, it's a, if the trial is positive or negative, there would be a press release that precedes the ASCO abstract, that precedes the ASH abstract. If it's a material conclusion, if it's a, you know, a, a, an also-ran trial, which doesn't really, it's commercially available drugs, doesn't really affect outcome, you can wait for the press release to, to come out on the same day as the abstract presentation. But that's how it's always been done so that's the first point. It's not new. It's, that's how it's, it is. Number two is, what is the content in the press release? Right. Uh, Most press releases, a good example would be Covaxin that came out uh, from India. is one of the vaccines that is approved and used in India. That has very scant detail. And it's impossible to use that to be sure what the real numbers are for the full trial, okay? You have press releases which have even less information, which simply say that we did the trial, we found a significant benefit, here is the p-value, but you don't have the actual raw numbers, how many people you know, had response or not, or died or not. Um, and then you have press releases like the dexamethasone press release where it pretty much has all the information that would have been in an ASCO abstract. It has the number of people, the total randomization, the link to the protocol uh, where you can look at the endpoints and the endpoint is survival, which is not fungible. You know, either they lived or didn't live. And they tell you X percent versus X percent and they give you a p-value hazard ratio. So you have all the information necessary to make the big call that you want to make. And it's almost so, I think it's easy to say, oh, it's a press release. That's very lazy without looking at, oh, was it really just a press release or did it have enough information that would have otherwise actually qualified as an abstract? So really not all press releases are created equal. Correct. It really depends on what's the content and is the content good enough for me to make a call? A call almost like a peer reviewer. That is, is it intent to treat? Do I have the protocol so I can verify what the design was? Do I know how many events occurred? Do I know, is it an event that requires a data safety monitoring board to tell me that it's true or not? Like it's, you know, response versus no response, progression versus no progression. Or is it a slam dunk endpoint? Like did the patient alive or, or, or not? Um, and then what was the magnitude of the difference what was the p-value? At that point, short of fraud, which peer review does not detect, there's not much that will change. Fraud or error? In you know, the that's, that, that's really, I think, there's, that's really a good point uh, for listeners out there. You know, peer review 
cannot detect a fraud. If somebody falsifies data and put the table and makes up uh, no. information, you can't really. And, and there has been there has been some uh, papers that uh, fraud was detected later on. Exactly. And were retracted. That's a good point. So that's really interesting. So press releases are not always created equal. Can you, anything comes to mind? You mentioned the COVAX as an example of a press release that did not change your management or recommendations, at least to the public. And then so the recovery. actually was a press release that did change the management. We are just not happy about it. We would rather have the full paper. I see. So, how, like, because it didn't have enough information in it, but you know, because of the urgency of the situation, the vaccination is going on. Right. But um, the dexamethasone press release is one where it's got all the information. So, years ago, for example, in 2005, I'll give you an example. I think real examples are good. I think 2005 or six, we had done the high dose dexamethasone versus low dose dexamethasone. I remember with lenalidomide. In that study, we randomized 445 patients. At the end of one year, 96% in the low-dose arm were alive versus 87% in the high-dose arm were alive. I mean, 10% total, 10 out of 100 was the death rate difference between the two arms, okay? The Data Safety Monitoring Board said, we have to close the trial and present the results and tell people about it. Now that's the type of trial where I have to issue a press release. I cannot say, oh, I will let wait for ASH meeting to come because that will be six months that people will continue to be dying with high dose deaths. So you, you issue a press release that low dose dexamethasone seems to be associated with significantly lower mortality than high dose dexamethasone. You issue the press release. Now, there might be some people who don't want to change their practice, but at least you have let them know. And there might be other people who'd say, I can access the protocol online. I have a legitimate NIH-funded group that did the trial. The NCI cell is involved. And these investigators found that there's a significant risk difference in depth between the two arms. And this is a commonly used drug that's commercially available. So there would be people who will change practice based on the press release. And I cannot fault them for that. After all, that's why I'm doing the press release. And you then know, the abstract comes several months later. The paper comes a year later. Right. right. And so it depends on what is the study. Is this If it's a study that's a laboratory study that finds a new biomarker, or if it's a it's a new prognostic factor or a new diagnostic test. I won't change my practice based on press release or, or the preprint or the abstract. I would wait for the full peer-reviewed paper so I can really, I've already had four people's input, now I'll be the fifth eye and I'll look at it and I'll decide whether to you know, go for it or not. But for decisions which can affect life or death, then you cannot be rigid with I will only wait for the peer review, or I will only do this this way or that way. You just have to look at the data yourself. If you're not able to, look at other people who have looked at the data critically and then make up your mind. You know, there's <clears throat> there's so much, um, so many pearls in what you said. 
Okay. Uh, okay. No, but it is, right? I mean, number one, you know, the blanket statement into I am not going to do anything different because it's a press release um, is, I would say, a rigid stance of the academy that is not justified because we need to remember that it's about patients, right? It's <laughs> you have patients at stake here. Like you said, if it's a if you're detecting an oncogene that uh, carries a bad prognosis for a disease, it's not affecting your management, so it doesn't really matter. But uh, this is really very different. I'm glad you brought an example because these examples do actually illustrate the point. So we talked about the preprints, uh, the manuscripts, the abstracts as well as the uh, press releases. Are there any other sources of information that the public uh, consumes usually to drive some of their decision-making? Um, and I would say that, um, again, I don't wanna talk all about COVID, but in general, like, you know, there are sometimes, so for COVID there's WHO, the CDC, there are some consensus statements, for non-COVID, you've got ASH guidelines, ASCO guidelines, NCCN guidelines, certain things. And oftentimes, Vincent, when I notice, like some of these guidelines or consensus statements may not always necessarily be, you know, like uh, it's really expertise. You bring like 10 myeloma guys, you've done myeloma for 25 years, and you just give some consensus statements. Uh, how do you view those in general, consensus statements or guidelines? This is a, just an absolutely excellent point that you just raised in terms of how we make decisions, you know, uh, not just the, the ones that we talked about so far, the press release, abstract, here preprint, original article is, is, is the original research itself. And then you have these opinion pieces, review articles and guidelines, which comment on those original pieces of work. And, help, and both of them together help you make a judgment call on what to do. But what the viewers or the listeners should keep in mind is, the bigger the magnitude of the difference, the more open shut the case is, none of these make a difference. I mean, if there is a huge survival difference between um, whether you give dexamethasone or not, when people are hypoxic for COVID, then it doesn't matter how many guidelines come out, they'll all say the same thing. And you know that's straightforward. So the bigger the magnitude of difference, most of the time, everybody's in agreement. A lot of these guidelines, editorials, opinion pieces, reviews, and the controversies come when the magnitude of difference is not that big or the endpoint is not correct. You know, The endpoint is actual survival, it's one thing. If the endpoint is, oh, I shortened the hospital stay, or I made somebody's fever, you know, two degrees less, faster, or I improved their neuropathy score. Then you have guidelines and controversies because everybody's now looking at value. They're looking at for this cost or for this many side effects, is this okay or not? And then you have to enter into all these endless debates with all of these. I think one easy way of categorizing editorials, reviews, guidelines, is to look at them as non-anonymous peer review. There are a bunch of experts who are reviewing this original research, but thank God now you know their names. 
You just have an you want to have just an excuse to meet in Hawaii or somewhere. <laughs> That's what it is. You know who these people are. You can judge their conflicts of interest, their biases, and then you can make a decision. And so, for I think a good example would be Remdesivir. Okay, Remdesivir comes out with the US NIH trial showing just a small survival difference, a shortening of the hospital stay. And then the solidarity trial, WHO, no difference. And then there are other trials, no survival difference. Now everybody's not sure. Should we use remdesivir? Should we not use remdesivir? Is the expense worth it? Is it have risks? Uh, does it have a role? Does it even really work? And that's where all the editorials, opinions, guidelines, everything comes in, where it's not really clear. No one argues whether RCHOP is good for lymphoma or you know, ABVD is the right treatment for Hodgkin's because those are pretty straightforward. So the more you get, and so people need to realize the more you have to examine reviews, editorials, guidelines, the more likely that the differences are not that big. So my, my last uh, question along these lines, and again, the, really the topic is how do, we, how do we consume information to take care of patients? And, and this one, I'll admit, I struggle with this one. Uh, I personally struggle with this one, um, and I'd love some guidance from you and for listeners. So sometimes the trial is not conducted in the U.S. Now, we're not talking fraud. We're talking, you know, trial happened in Japan, um, in Asia, in Europe, in whatever. Um, and there's a conclusion of that trial, and it's a positive conclusion, and the question becomes, how transferable data in interventional studies of therapeutic intervention, we're not talking reviews or epidemiology sure. or things like that, how transferable that to the patients here? Um, and I hear different views, and I I'll stop. I would like you to clarify this for us. Some, one view says, you know, if there's a trial that actually happened and, and the, the trial is positive, Repeating that study, the same study in U.S. population is waste of resources, and you could be denying something very important and effective to these patients. And I hear the opposite view that we should do it because there are additional factors. You know, first of all, pharmacogenomics may be different in Europe and Asia than the U.S. Uh, uh, drug metabolism, uh, environmental factors, other things. So how do you reconcile this when you have trials being done elsewhere and you apply that trial data here in the US where you practice? That's a great question. Um, if step back and you look at most oncology trials, I look at most myeloma trials that I'm familiar with, all the large phase threes. Even though they look like maybe they are U.S. trials because they published in U.S. journals with U.S. authors all over the place, first, last, everything, 95% of the participants are enrolled abroad. And if your question is, does, does what works in them apply here because there might be racial, genomic, whatever else differences, it doesn't matter whether the authors are from America or the companies in America, where were the participants from? And most of oncology trials, big phase threes, most of the population is outside the US who's enrolled in the trial. There's a small number of people who are enrolled in the US. Mm. 
we do approve drugs based on those trials. Almost all the myeloma drugs were approved, uh, whether it's carfilzomib or daratumumab, all of the full approvals came from trials where most of the approval were from overseas. We did not insist on a separate US trial, um, but these drugs are then used in the market and they're, you don't actually need even a single US patient to get a drug approved if it's, if it's a good randomized trial. So keep that in mind. But your second point is we do that. Is that the right thing? That's what you're asking. Uh, just because we do it, does it make it right? And I've been a little nervous about this, mainly because of the racial disparities. Um, many of the large randomized trials have hardly any African-Americans in them. And there are important reasons to think that drug metabolism and other things, dosages and everything could be different by race groups. And so I think to an extent, we don't need to replicate the trial but at a minimum, we can require that the trial demographics look similar to the US or close to the US in some way. So that, you know, right now, if you have 2% African Americans in a trial, make it at least, you know, 5 or 10%. You don't have to make it 13, but, you know, somewhere close to what the population is here to make sure that we are fine, that we're not missing uh, an adverse event or we're not missing efficacy signals. Um, by not having that. So that's what I would, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agreed. And I think it would require a lot of effort to, um, to do that, it, change the inclusion exclusion criteria. Um, I would say we could be uh, less strict in some of the, we could be more pragmatic in some of these things. Can I uh, uh, tell you a, a, an anecdote just to describe what we've been talking just please. I love so the listeners have a take home in terms of what they are supposed to do. Yes, please. So when I was in med school, I read a book called This Remarkable Drug Has Been Overlooked. It was a book uh, I found in the library in the medical school and I read it. And at the, that, the next day I was like, as if I have found something that no one in medicine had known about. And the, and the drug was Dilantin. And the book had literally 100 different diseases that dilantin can cure. Cure? Cure. You, you have abdominal pain, you take it and it goes away. If you have neuropathy, you take it, it goes away. And, and it just goes on and on with chapter by chapter of various diseases for which dilantin works with the number of patients exactly, you know, that they had neuropathy for 10 years, now they took it, and then the neuropathy went away, and five years have gone by, they never got the neuropathy, that kind of stuff, okay? And I said, oh my God, we have really missed this drug. This is something that could cure everything, and why are we not using it? We are using it only for seizures. I took it to a colleague of mine who was at the time very good in critical appraisal, and he told me, about critical appraisal, about what to look for and how not to get, you know, fooled by anecdotal type of information. And how, and then from there, you start reading the, you know, user's guide to the medical literature, you know, all those algorithms on how to interpret a study and how to go through a study. I'm talking in the year 1998, 99, um, at that period of time read David Sackett's book, Fletcher's book. But the point is, 
ultimately, as physicians who are responsible for patients, when we prescribe something, we need to know how to critically appraise whether it's a press release, whether it's an abstract, whether it's a preprint or a peer review publication. We need yeah. to know how to critically appraise it. And if you're not confident of that, learn it. And if you're not, if you're busy and you don't have the time to look at drugs that you don't commonly use, then you look to people who you trust, who are good peer reviewers, who are good at critical appraisal and see what they say. And that's, in other words, editorials, reviews, and um, articles written by experts you trust who don't have conflict of interest. Yeah, and that's important. Look, frankly, I think people are very busy and they are consuming um, things by Twitter or by short forms. And one of the tweets I one time put several months ago is that, you know, you know, before people lived in the entire papers and the abstracts and the conclusions, like our attention span yes. is small. I mean, I'll admit, look, for certain things I'm not interested in, like if just like, you know, some disease in gynae oncology, which I don't have really a lot of interest, I read just the conclusion of the abstract and I just move on. I just want to know what's going on. Like, you know, what's happening. And certainly for lymphomas or malignant heme, I read the entire paper because I'm just very interested in that. And I believe a lot of people are in the same boat. In community oncology, when you are now have to have the breadth of everything, it's impossible to do that for everything. So I, I do agree that relying on editorial comments and, and um, it's going to be important. Did, we, did I miss anything, Vincent? Did we cover all of the spectrum? No, I think we had, we we did cover we had a good discussion on on each of the categories and and obviously you cannot make any hard conclusions and that's the main thing that you want to leave the listeners with you don't want to make a blanket statement oh I never practice medicine by press release or I mean you could I think we should write I think me and you should write a viewpoint on that yeah sure. I'm actually serious let's we should talk about that because I just think there's there's something there I just feel that it's really important to recognize this, I mean, the, 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 it does take time from submitting your paper until it is out even online. I actually think for your journal, it's pretty ambitious that you can get in three to four weeks. Um, so it's good, obviously, for maybe some very high-end uh, papers, but really a lot of papers just take way longer, even in this day and age. Um, yes. Definitely better than 20 years ago, but um, yes. it does yes. take time. It, it does. does, it does. In fact, one of the great COVID papers that I was not an author on, but I heard about was a paper by Jeremy Howard and colleagues on the role of masks mm -hmm. for preventing COVID. That was a preprint, I think somewhere in April of 2020. Oh, wow, that long ago, okay. And it was the most downloaded preprint in that server by middle of the year. Even. But it took almost a whole year for the paper to get published. Yeah, yeah. But because, you know, there are people who like what you have to say and people who don't. And by the time it goes through multiple journals and multiple revisions, sometimes it can take a long time. You, all of that we talked about is a lucky paper that goes through yeah, a peer review and a quick acceptance. But I've had papers which had to go to four or five journals before they finally got published. Hey, there's a journal for every paper out there. there is. 
Thank God. If it wasn't the case, I would be in big <laughs> trouble. Vincent, thank you so much. It's always nice to visit with you. And uh, you're always generous by giving, giving me time and giving listeners time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Charlie. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I appreciate your support. I appreciate your candid feedback that you always send me. And you can continue to send me this feedback by direct messaging me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan. That's at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N. Or sending me an email to Shadi Nabhan, O-O at Outlook.com. Please visit my website, ShadiNabhan.com, and let me know what you think. Look at all of the features that I have on the website Always looking forward to your feedback and to your candid support. Please rate the show, review the show, write a brief review, subscribe, find it on YouTube, and refer a friend or a colleague. You can find the show on all podcast outlets, from Apple Podcasts to Spotify to SoundCloud, anywhere you consume your podcasts. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying of Winston Churchill. Everyone has his day, and some days last longer than others. Until next time, take care.